Thank you so much. Um, yeah, it's good to have my parents here. And uh, they used to drag me to church, and now I'm dragging them to church. It's awesome, huh? See, they came full circle. Um, also, when Nat said, you know, ask the person next to you, you know, how, how much the internal thermostat went up during that set, I looked at my mom and I said, is it, is it because of the menopause? And she said, that's not funny. Um, but it's a real thing, apparently. So anyway, but it's good to have you guys here, uh, all of you, not just my parents. Um, and uh, we're going to be digging into part five of our series, Giants Must Fall. And um, the whole concept is to draw, um, to, to look at God's story, God's history of how he brought people, his people, Israel, out of the land uh, of Egypt, brought them into the promised land, and how so often the New Testament re- references that as a picture for, to help us understand the story of salvation. Uh, and so today's sermon, uh, for all you young guns of the North Coast, is entitled, Get That Good Bread. Now, no one's laughing because that's colloquial, and it's quite well known. Um, it's so well known that I didn't know it. Actually, Luto Ngebeza, who's <laughs> our youth pastor, he told me about this. I actually stole his intro. Uh, but get that good bread is a colloquial phrase, and then he gave three definitions for it. It's like to go out and get your money, so to go and hustle and to grind. And it's funny how he used two other colloquial expressions, hustle and grind, to explain another colloquial expression. So, um, but there's also synonyms here. It's let's eat this wheat, let's attain the grain, let's feast on this yeast, empower this flour. These are all people use this in language if you've never heard this before. Um, just so you can, you know, next time you're in like a meeting with your like board or something, you just throw this down uh, and get some street cred. Uh, go with the dough or entrust this crust. But it's all about how do you hustle? How do you go out and get what you need? Make a plan. It's about that self-will. I'm just going to go and make it happen. Um, and so today I'm not going to speak about money. I'm actually going to, we're going to be looking at the, the story of manna from Exodus 16, um, and how God uh, provided for his people bread, uh, and then we're going to look at what that means for us as believers. So just uh, some context here. Um, God had just delivered his people out of Egypt, and uh, they're heading towards the promised land, and in the interim, they're traveling through a desert. I don't know if you've ever been in a desert, but people like Bear Grylls make a living on showing people how to survive in the desert, and you've got to have a serious set of skills. He was like ex-SAS, and just to keep one person alive in the desert is quite a a big thing. Um, They had two million people. So Bear Grylls times two million, um, and they had to keep these people alive in the wilderness. And so there's a small issue of how do we um, drink enough water and, and eat enough food. And a little bit before this, um, they complained about not having water, and then Moses had... I struck the rock the first time, and I was supposed to speak to it the second time, I struck it again, and God brought water from the rock, which is a handy little trick to do. Bear girls never did that. Um, and then there's the small issue of how do you feed two million people? Imagine it's your responsibility to feed two million people every day. Because this is how Moses is feeling, because they're coming to him, and they are complaining and say it would be better that we had died there than come here to starve. Um, and so Moses goes to God, and God says he's going to send them food. Even Moses is surprised. Uh, but the next morning, they wake up, and the ground is covered with what looks like fine dew. It's a substance that looked like uh, coriander seeds, and it tastes like honey wafers. And they're instructed to go and collect an omer each, as you do, which I think is about one and a half liters, two quarts. Um, And they were instructed to eat everything they'd had that day. And if they didn't eat everything they had that day, the next day it would be rotten. Unless it was the day before the Sabbath, then they had to collect twice as much. And on the Sabbath day, it wouldn't be rotten. So that's 
quite a miracle. Um, and so this is what they do. And, and the amazing thing is Jesus actually draws on this analogy to explain who he is to us. And so we're going to dig into that a little bit. Um, and what we're going to do is we're going to go to John chapter 6. And this is just if you studying your scriptures, studying your Bible, there's an amazing principle, which is you use scripture to interpret scripture. So, so often we're looking at one uh, text and, for example, dealing with manna, Exodus 16. But then go and look for other references. And you can do this quite easily with a Google search or an eSword, which is a free downloadable study program, where you just search for every time the word manna is used in the Bible. And then you get how, what the Bible says about manna in other places, and it builds a broader picture. And so so that's what we're going to do. We're going to go to John chapter 6. We're going to look at the concept of manna and what Jesus said about it. And then we're going to look at the Old Testament scriptures. And we're going to take that understanding and layer it into the Old Testament text. So John 6, 26. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. You want to be with me because I fed you. He's speaking to the crowds. He's just fed them, the, fed the 5,000. He said, you want to be with me because I fed you, not because you understand the miraculous signs, but don't be so concerned about the perishable things like food. Spend your energy seeking the eternal life that the Son of Man can give you. For God the Father has given me the seal of his approval. And so what Jesus is doing here is he's juxtaposing earthly perishable things with eternal things. He's saying, hey, you're worried about the wrong stuff. You're seeking after food, and you should actually be seeking spiritual food uh, that doesn't perish, eternal life. So they reply, we want to perform God's works too. What should we do? They're quite ambitious lot. Like, hey, Jesus, you're doing these works. We want to do it too. And Jesus gives him this phenomenal answer. He says, this is the only work God wants from you. Believe in the one he has sent. And it's quite amazing, you know. It's like Jesus lives this extraordinary life where he, sometimes he prays all night. He gets up early. He goes to be with the Father. His whole life is immersed in, in this relationship with the Father. And what he actually says to them is, don't like, okay, you need to become like spiritual monks and uh, give yourself in, in devotion to this stuff, and then you can work these works. He just says, this is the only thing God wants from you. Believe in the one he has sent. Isn't that like a little bit of a weight off? And on the one hand, I go, that's a weight off, because all God really wants is that we believe in Jesus. And on the other hand, it's trickier than we first think, because the whole of the discipleship journey is applying faith in Jesus to every area of our lives. And that's a lifelong process. How do we apply faith? How do you right now apply faith in Jesus to the, your current situation? And that's, in a sense, is what you should be able to answer immediately, because that's what God wants for you. So this is what I believe about Jesus in my circumstance, and this is how God wants me to live. They answered, show us a miraculous sign. They're a little bit unimpressed. Believe in me? Ah, show us a miraculous sign. If you want us to believe in you, what can you do? After all, our ancestors ate manna. That's where we get this New Testament reference, okay, manna. Our ancestors ate manna while they journeyed through the wilderness. The scriptures say Moses gave them bread from heaven to eat. It's amazing here that Jesus says, believe in me, and they go, show us a sign and we'll believe in you. And we go, oh, this unbelieving people. I don't know how many times I've been in this circumstance in my life where I've basically said to God, God, show me a sign and I'll believe in you. So, for example, you'll be in a situation where you're struggling financially and it comes to paying a tithe or it comes to doing something, to taking a faith step, and we basically go, God, provide for me and then I'll give. In other words, show me a sign, and then I'll believe, and I'll start walking in faith. I remember very clearly a few years ago where I was really struggling with fatigue, and I remember going to God again and again and saying, God, heal me. And God would say, believe in me. And I'd say, I literally said, God, heal me, and I'll believe in you. And God said, believe in me, and I'll heal you. And we, we can't take that 
thing that God did in my life in that moment, in my story, and apply it to every context in our life, but it's an illustration of the fact that so often we come to God and we're saying, God, I know you can heal me, but I'm really unsure if you will. And God is going, hey, walk in faith with me because that's what I want from you. In other words, so often we can say, God, show me a sign and I'll believe. And God says, believe and you'll see the signs. Jesus said, I tell you the truth. And they also said, Moses gave us bread from heaven to eat. In other words, Moses gave us the bread, therefore we believe in him. And the irony is that Moses performed all these miracles, or God did through Moses, and they never believed in him. Only the ancestors later who weren't there believed in him. And Jesus said, I tell you the truth, Moses didn't give you bread from heaven, my father did, and now he offers you the true bread from heaven. So remember, uh, manna was a form of bread that he gave them. Now he offers you the true bread from heaven. The true bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to to the world. Sir, they said, give us that bread every day. Jesus replied, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry again. Jesus is basically saying he's the New Testament example of Old Testament manna. Or he's the New Testament fulfillment of Old Testament manna. He's saying, I'm the manna that God sent down from heaven and gave to you, just like he gave manna to the people with Moses. Then the people began to murmur in disagreement because he said to them, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph? We know his father and mother. How can he say, I came down from heaven? They're completely unimpressed. And here's what's going on, is Jesus is saying to them, he said, I am the bread of life. Now, if you think of bread, you know, now in in, in our world, bread isn't valued so highly because of gluten intolerance and banting and carbophobia and all these different things. Um, But in the ancient world, bread is really the basic food item that keep people alive. In fact, not many years ago now, there was a situation in in Egypt, particularly Cairo, where there were what was called bread riots, where the price of food had gone up, and the people said, we can't afford bread. Not we can't afford lamb, we can't afford shish kebab, we can't afford, we can't afford bread. And the people rioted because they say, you're basically depriving us of the basic food source that keeps us alive. And it's so amazing that Jesus didn't say, I am the cordon bleu meal of life. He said, I'm the bread of life. I'm the basic item that sustains you and keeps you alive. And here's the thing is they start murmuring, which isn't how exactly what they did in the Old Testament, is they kept on murmuring towards God, and these people are still murmuring towards God because they, God is offering them what they need, but because they don't have faith in what He's offering, they can't receive it. You see, God has given us what we need, but it requires faith to access it. And so God um, is teaching them a lesson and basically saying, I'm the bread of life, and when you place your faith in me, you'll be able to feed on me, and I will nourish your soul. And so what we're going to do now is we're going to take this understanding that Jesus is the bread of heaven, that Jesus is our manna, our daily food requirement, and we're going to layer it back into Old Testament texts. Exodus 16. Then the Lord said to Moses, Look, I'm going to rain down food from heaven for you. Each day the people can go and pick up as much food as they need that day. New Testament understanding. Look, I'm going to rain down spiritual food. I'm going to rain down the person of Jesus from heaven for you. Each day 
you can go and pick up as much of him as you need for that day. Isn't it amazing that God rains down the person of Jesus in our life? He doesn't like drip feed. Like I've seen that because water is a scarce commodity now. They've got the, in Israel, they had that drip feeder where they just put one drop of nutrient right at the root and gives you just exactly what you need. God doesn't do that. He's lavish. He rains down the person of Jesus in our life. And he says, you, you can go every single day. There's an invitation to go and get what you need from him. And that invitation is open every day. There's an invitation to dwell in him, to abide on him, to feed on him, to live in his love every single day. And all around you, when you get up, you know, his mercies on you every morning. Every single morning, there's a fresh uh, displacement of manna all around your life. And you get to go and get up and receive what you need to nourish your soul, to strengthen you so that you can do what God wants you to do and make it through. Make it through life, I suppose, to be nourished with him. And the next morning, the area around the camp was wet with dew. When the dew evaporated, a flaky substance as fine as frost blanketed the ground. The Israelites were puzzled when they saw it. What is it? They asked each other. They had no idea what it was. I don't know about you, but the first time I encountered the presence of God, I had no idea what it was. I was just like, this is good. In fact, in other places it says that he was sweet. It's like honey. The presence of Jesus is sweet. And the first time when I encountered the presence of God, it was I'd given my life to Jesus uh, that night at church, and I went home, and I was lying in my bed, and the presence of God filled my room. And I was like, I don't know what that is, but it's good. Do you remember the first time you encountered the presence of God? Do you remember the first time when you were amazed? Like, what is this? This is what my soul desires. This is what my soul has been longing for. And as we receive of him and we eat of him, it nourishes us. Then Moses told them, do not keep any of it until morning. But some of them didn't listen and kept some of it until morning. But by then it was full of maggots and had a terrible smell. Moses was very angry with them. How amazing is it? This is going to take some understanding, that God provides manna, a blessing, a picture of Jesus, and they go and collect it, but the people who hoard it and keep some for the morrow, for the next morning, when they wake up, that same manna which was a blessing yesterday is rotten today. Let's take some understanding, so just stick with me a little bit. Have you ever gone to a conference or gone to a church meeting or gone to a men's camp or a ladies' camp or a ladies' conference or had some spiritual encounter with God where you powerfully encountered God? Ever had one of those moments? Ever ask yourself the question, I wish I could take that encounter and bottle it and keep it for the rest of my life so I could feed on it whenever I need it? And what happens is we leave that encounter, we leave that place, and we walk away from it, and our hearts are so full, and come one week, come two weeks, come three weeks, we look back and go, what happened to that encounter? It feels like it's soaked out of my soul, and I wish I had got it back. You know what you've done? Is you're like that Israelite who kept some behind because you try to feed on it the next day, and it's lost its power. 
And God designed life like this. Because you know what it is? It's the heart of an orphan or a poverty spirit. Because what you're basically saying is, God encountered me here, but I don't believe God will encounter me tomorrow. So I'm going to hold on to what he's done, which we should do. But I'm going to cling to it because I don't believe he's going to meet me in the morrow. And in the morrow, he's got fresh manna for you. And I don't know how many times I've been in this space when I've been with God and I've been praying and I've been seeking His face and He's broken into my life something amazing. I'm like, that's it. That is the silver bullet. That's the bread that they say, give us this bread so that we're never hungry again. Give us this water so we never thirst again. And God says, your hunger and your thirst are meant to bring you back to me so I can fill you again and again and again. And you can taste and see that the Lord is good. And if we don't understand this, what will happen is we'll go into these moments, we'll go into these encounters, God will do something amazing, and because you think this is the silver bullet, over time, the revelation that he's got, that feeling that you have starts to go like this and sink, and eventually you say, oh, what God did there, was it really real? Because it feels like it isn't with me anymore. Do you know what I'm saying? And if you don't understand this, what will happen is the enemy will come and he'll try to undermine your faith in the goodness of God. Because eventually he'll say, oh, well, God did that, but my life is the same. And God did that then, and my life is the same. And God did that then, and my life's the same. And does God really change anything? I've been in this space. And God is saying, hey, I'm a good father. Every single day, come receive from me afresh. Every single day, I got fresh manna for you. It might not look like what I did yesterday, but it's exactly what you need for today. The Israelites called the food manna. It was white like coriander seed, and it tasted like honey wafers. Is there anything as sweet as the presence of Jesus? Why wouldn't we want to go and receive of him afresh every day? He's described as the bread of heaven. He's described as living water. He's described as new wine. Psalm 63, 5, you satisfy me more than the richest feast. I will praise you with songs of joy. So the people of Israel ate manna for 40 years until they arrived at the land where they would settle. They ate manna until they came to the border of the land of Canaan. You know, the people of Israel, they got in a little bit of trouble sometime because they complained about getting the same food every single day. If you could choose one meal to eat for the rest of your life or for the next 40 years, some of you will last longer than that, Hopefully. Sorry, that was a bad joke. It didn't come out right. It's all in the delivery. I messed that one up. Um, what would it be? If you had to choose one meal to eat for the next 40 years, what would it be? Avon toast? Uh, sorry? Toast. Lamb stew. Oof, I love lamb. Sushi. I guarantee you, no, no matter what you eat every single day, eventually you'll grow tired of it. Because I, I've had seasons of eating the same thing every day, particularly when I was a bachelor. Um, and I remember when I first got to Israel, I, I left home, I went to Israel. For six months, I lived on pretzels and hummus. 
It's delicious. But after six months, I was like, I need something else. And then I started getting every day for lunch for four, because we got free tins of tuna from our food bank. We had a food that, a bank, like a, a place, warehouse, where we gave out tons and tons of food. And so as volunteers, we got some food. And so I ate tuna and tomatoes every single day for four years. Let me tell you, it's hard to get excited about your next meal. And I wondered why God would get upset with them that they're complaining about the same meal every day. And here's the thing is that they were meant to walk in faith. And when we take our faith and we apply it to the person of Jesus, it delights the soul. And it doesn't matter how many times you've done that. It will be fresh every time. You see, without faith, being a Christian will seem bland. Spending time in his presence will seem bland. I mean, there's another, another verse here from Numbers where it, it reinforces this. Then the foreign rabble who were traveling with the Israelites began to crave the good things of Egypt. And the people of Israel also began to complain. Oh, for some meat, they exclaimed. We remember the fish we used to eat for free. In there's no such thing as a free fish. If you ask fishermen, okay, ask fishermen's wives how much they spend catching those fish. But now all of a sudden it's free. Try and convince my wife that. She tells me it's not free. We remember the fish we used to eat for free in Egypt and we had all the cucumbers. This is when you know they've lost the plot because they're fantasizing about cucumbers. <laughs> Melons, leeks, do me a favor. No one's ever been excited about leeks. Onions and garlic. Okay, I get that bit. We wanted, but now our appetites are gone. All we ever see is this manna. What a turnaround. From the joy of miraculous provision to the bitterness of the same miraculous provision. And we see them same murmuring that we saw on the day of Jesus in their, in their life. Here's the thing. The enemy's modus operandi is to take the miraculous and make it look mundane and take the mundane and make it look miraculous. Let me explain. The fact that every single morning they got up to a sign of the faithfulness of God, this was the only thing that was sustaining them. They were basically complaining to God, hey, the way you're sustaining us isn't good enough. I wish you sustained us better. And so and suddenly they're fantasizing about ordinary things like leeks and cucumbers and free fish. Ever come to that place in your life where spending time with Jesus, feeding on the manner of Jesus, feels like hard work? I know I have. Anyone else? One or two honest people? There we go. Just don't leave me hanging because otherwise this point doesn't count. You see, what, what the enemy wants to do is he wants you to look at the miraculous provision of the person of Jesus and the presence of Jesus in your life as something mundane that we don't value anymore. Because I remember when I was first saved, 
And I was coming out of this space of soul poverty and sin and mess. The fact that I could go be in the presence of Jesus every single morning was absolutely breathtaking for me. I would wake up early. I would read my Bible. I was supposed to be studying for my trick. And all I wanted, I remember every single night, my poor dad would come home from working like 12 hours and he'd lie in his bed and I'd just come and say, Dad, this is what the Bible says. Yeah, it's crazy. What does it mean? There was this hunger in me because I can't believe that I would read the presence of, read the word of God. And in that moment, the presence of Jesus would be with me. And there was a spiritual hunger. But fast forward a few years and that spiritual hunger has slowly ebbed away. And suddenly I find myself going to pray. And it's like, is it manna again? Because I did this yesterday and the day before, and I'm reading his Bible. And, and for me, what happened was this pattern. Number one, I got very legalistic about spending time with Jesus. And so if I didn't spend time with Jesus, I'd feel guilty. And so when I did go spend time with Jesus, I spent time apologizing for not spending time with him the day before. And there was this guilt that eroded. Let me tell you, legalism will absolutely destroy your passion for the presence of God because no one wants to go hang out with someone that makes them feel guilty all the time. We've got to absolutely eradicate. If you didn't spend time with Jesus yesterday, forget about it. Today's a fresh day. His mercies are new every morning. Come in there, thanksgiving. Thank you, God, that you're available to me. We have to eradicate guilt and condemnation from our devotional life. We absolutely have to go to war on that thing. Because it will absolutely rob your heart of the joy of spending time with Jesus. Because all that's left then in that place is the joy of discipline that I'm spending time with Jesus. Look at me. Every day I read five chapters and I spend time with him. And then you do that every day. And because it's not in faith, the word of God doesn't get applied to your life. It doesn't fill your heart. And you get stuck in the same space that you were in yesterday. And you say, actually, this word of God thing, I don't know how it's working. That's exactly what happened to me. And then the second thing is at that point, when we're starting to get disillusioned, we look around us and we find that there's other things that can fill our hearts. 1 Peter 2.11, dear friends, I warn you, as temporary residents and foreigners, just like the people of Israel were temporary residents, foreigners, sojourners in 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 the wilderness, to keep away from worldly desires that wage war against your very souls. You see, in that space where you've lost sight of the goodness of the fact that Jesus is manna for you, fresh for you every single day, in that space, the enemy will come along and go, hey man, maybe if you just had that promotion in your career, or you had that holiday, or you had that experience, and in that moment, he's trying to make the mundane look miraculous. Promotion and work, and those are good things. Onion and garlic and leeks even are good things, but they're not miraculous. And when you've got the eyes of the miraculous, you see the good things in them. But without it, those things, we, 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 we end up looking at mundane things like work and promotions and how much we earn and where we go on holiday and all these things. As that the, That's the thing that's going to sustain my soul. And I can't ever. And so these two things, legalism and, and, and uh, believing that there's more life in the world than in Jesus, will rob us and our ability to see the miracle that it is that Jesus Christ every single morning is waiting for you. He's got an appointment for you. He wants you to come and be with him because he wants to feed and nourish your soul. Yes, he humbled you by letting you go hungry and then feeding you with manna. 
A food previously unknown to you and your ancestors, he did it to teach you that people do not live by bread alone. Rather, we live by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. For all these 40 years, your clothes didn't wear out and your feet didn't blister or swell. Two points here. Number one, he humbled you. It's confusing. Ever found yourself in that mode where you're chasing the wrong thing, you're chasing success or money or whatever, you're taking your eyes off Jesus, and in that space you get to the point in your life where you just realize, man, I'm, my soul is famished. And in that place there's this beautiful humility that goes, Jesus, I need you. Matthew 5.3, God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. You see, that realization of your need for Jesus is the gateway to spiritual wealth in the kingdom of heaven. Need is bad if you can't sustain the need. But our God is faithful. And every single morning, a fresh manna, a blanket of manna is waiting for you to go and collect one of him. And the second point is this. Remember this phrase. It's in here. It says, people do not live by bread alone. Rather, we live by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. It's actually what Jesus used to defeat Satan in the wilderness, where Satan said, come and turn these stones. If you're the son of God, turn these stones into bread. And he said, man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. I I don't know if you know this, but we live not in an academic or philosophical way, in a downright, earthy, normal, everyday kind of way, we live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. That's where life is. That's where fullness is. That's where soulfulness is. That's where joy is. That's where peace is. That's where wisdom is. That's where breakthrough is. That's where what you need for today is. Every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. It's an invitation to us. Come, feed on Jesus. And I don't know what that looks like for you. Recently, I found myself in this space where it just felt like, again, I was soul famished and some of those daily practices. And and I remember I said, Jesus, if you want me to pray in the morning, wake me up at five. It's a dangerous prayer. The next morning, I woke up at five o'clock. And so I went and spent time with Jesus. The next morning, I woke up at five or eight. So I was like, ah, I can sleep in. And normally I would go straight back to sleep, and I couldn't. So the next morning I woke up at 5.01, and I knew God was inviting me. And there's a negotiated hour in our home after 8 o'clock till 9 o'clock as we go to bed at 9. That's my time when I go and read the Word and spend time with Jesus. We've negotiated it. My wife and I, okay, we're here. We're going to get everything done by 8 o'clock. We, we can hang out 8 o'clock got an appointment and here's the amazing thing because I got the sometimes Jesus does let me sleep to six like if my son's been up a lot in the night he's got mercy <laughs> but the point is is that there's some days I, I, I get both those slots some days I get one of those slots some days I get half of one of those slots but there's a mechanism and I know that's the time that's the time when I get to go and be with Jesus When's your time? Because they used to wake up every morning and there was fresh manna. We had to go, they had to go collect as soon as the Jew had evaporated. There was a time slot. When's your time? It's very practical with this stuff. Um, everyone's heard of the Wesleys, the guys who started Methodism. 
John and Charles were the two of the brothers. Um, the Wesleys were raised by, I think it's Susanna Wesley. She had, I think, 17 children, five of whom died in infancy. So she had 12 children. And she really was, she's referred to as the mother of Methodism. Because she basically schooled and educated her kids to know Jesus. And there's this amazing story about her that every day at the same time, the kids knew this is mom's hour with Jesus, and she would sit in her chair, and she would take her apron and throw it over her head. And the kids knew, the older kids were like, hey, kids, it's mom's time with Jesus. It was negotiated, it was established, this is the time. And because of that, she was sustained. The, the house was burnt down, I think, two or three times. At one time, her husband, who was a pastor, left her. She had no formal source of income without him, and yet she raised 12 children to know Jesus. An extraordinary woman. And we look at that, and we go, what special gift did she have? What? Every day, she went to go get manna. So she had something to give her kids and the world around her. You do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of your Father. Let's pray. Father God, I, I pray for two things. Number one, that you completely eradicate any form of legalism in our pursuing of you. That wherever there's guilt or condemnation, or shame, that we're not pursuing you enough, God, that you just smash that thing in two. God, we just, we, we do not tolerate guilt and shame in our life, God, and we reject it. And secondly, God, that we would see the sweetness of Jesus afresh every single day, and know that there's an invitation to come and be sustained by you. Thank you, Jesus.